Well, it is with great sadness that I open the show with some bad news. Linux Fest Northwest, unfortunately, has been cancelled. Definitely sad news. Don't, you know, but don't use the cancelled word. It's it's postponed, cancelled, yeah, punted, punted. It's been punted into 2024. Uh, spring, I would imagine, of 2024. It is really, really, really a bummer. Because it's been since like 2019 since Linux Fest has gotten together. We were just saying before we press record... I haven't been a host on the Jupiter Network whilst there has been a Linux Fest Northwest. Yeah, it's been at least, so we know, it's been at least 106 episodes of self-hosted since there's been a Linux yeah. Fest. There is going to be some activities and meetups going on for the folks that are still going to make it into the area. Or maybe you already have some travel arrangements set. There's going to be some Friday night parties, some Saturday activities, some Jupiter broadcasting stuff. We'll be doing meetups too. So details are at meetup.com slash Northwest. Yeah, it's a great shame, but uh, it's one of those things. I think there's some construction work happening at Bellingham Technical College where the event is uh, traditionally held. And unfortunately, they had to make the last minute decision to, I'll use your semantically correct version, postpone the event until next spring. I haven't made it up there yet, but I kind of think I want to because I've been told that it's shocking uh, what's going on. Because I guess it wasn't um, originally planned. It was some sort of seismic issue. It caused some sort of damage to the building. I don't know, but it sounds sounds like they'll be we'll be honestly probably still hoping it's wrapped up by spring, but that seems to be the safe bet. So you're telling me it was an earthquake. That uh, that that would have been a much better headline to lead with. Linux Fest cancelled due to earthquake. I don't know actually. It, it just seems that's the that's the what I get down the grapevine. I don't actually know the nature of the damage. Uh, well, fair enough. Well, in happier news, anyway, there was an Apple event this week, and whilst there wasn't a huge amount of stuff that was super interesting, uh, I thought it was actually pretty cool that iPadOS 17 has added USB-C support for input devices. So you can now use your iPad running iPadOS 17 as an HDMI monitor. Wow. I did, How did this pass by me? I mean, I knew... This was the year of USB-C at Apple, but this feels like genuine, full-on capability. You're telling me, if I got me an iPad with iOS 17 and the USB-C connector, somehow I can tell that device to behave as an input display? It will be an external display to another device? Well, technically what Apple added was webcam support. So what these adapters are doing is pretending to be a webcam and then capturing the HDMI input through a third-party application. You can look in the show notes. There's one that I found at orion.tube, no affiliation. I just found it and thought it was cool, uh, which lets you import an HDMI feed or source essentially as a webcam on the iPad. Oh, I see. Boy, I mean, it's not quite the level of support I was hoping to see from Apple. I'd love to see this just be an OS feature. However... Um, that's still kind of a neat feature that it has built in now that they're just kind of taking advantage of. <laughs> well, you know what I'm thinking of is is when I travel, I mean, the iPad is darn near the perfect travel media consumption device. It's got great speakers. It's got a great screen. It's got great battery life, everything else. However, the single worst part of the iPad experience is getting media onto this device. Now, this is going to be a bit of an episode where we tear into Plex a little bit. So I'm going to start early. The Plex downloads feature was bad, you know, where you used to transcode things. It used to take forever. And now it is objectively terrible because you can either set a global setting to say download this content at this specific quality 
but that only affects the entire downloads from that point on once the setting is set. I would prefer to download, let's say, an entire series of Top Gear at 480p because it's just background noise. But then the one or two films I haven't seen yet, I'd like those to be in 1080 or something, you know? So it's uh, it's just frustrating. So what I'm thinking maybe is that on a flight or something like that, I could come up with some kind of a way to jimmy-rig in some kind of a small media playback device that's got everything cached locally on it. When I get to my Airbnb or wherever, I unplug it from the iPad and plug it into the TV if I want to. And then on the plane, I could just use it as an HDMI input. All right. That's kind of interesting. So I've also been considering if I'm bringing the iPad on the next flight. In November, I'm flying to El Salvador, bringing the wife and the boy with me. And the main thing I want to do on this super long couple of flights is watch movies. And I've been rolling around in my head like, do I want to do the Plex Sync thing? That's had problems. It's There is advantages, but it's had problems. Do I want to do something else with Jellyfin? And then it hit me, Alex. Get ready for this. I could just leave the iPad at home and I could do it all on the laptop. The laptop's got a 16-inch screen. It's got more storage than the iPad. It'll probably be easier to work in some sort of weird Bluetooth jerry rig situation. I know it'll do local playback with no issue. I could do it connected or disconnected. And technically, if I just use all the apps on the laptop for everything else, I could kind of just completely eliminate the iPad altogether. Um, There is a simplicity with the iPad, especially if you can get things really smooth with the media syncing. But it occurred to me when you're looking at like bag weight and size, the laptop solved this a long time ago with just the file system and moving things around and I can just maximize it on the screen and then we're watching it on a 16 screen, which is larger than my iPad. I think this all the time, whenever anybody talks to me about coding on their iPad or doing anything even remotely esoteric, (laughs) like just so often I'm sat on the couch with my iPad and I think, God, this would be so much easier with a laptop. The exception is when I'm trying to cram my fat ass into a plane seat and I've got six inches of legroom in front of me to open up a 16-inch lunch tray. That's where the iPad is totally killer. But yeah, I I, I totally... Yeah, because you can do the iPad and have room for your drink. You know, with the laptop, it's dominating. It's like hanging off the edges of the tray. (laughs) Yeah, and then you're kind of like a T-Rex arms trying to type on the keyboard, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we are going to talk about Plex today. I mean, this has to be one of the number one stories that's been sent into the show in in a while. And um, I thought I'd start with a success story. You know, I recently talked on the show about how I did move back to Plex because I was already using it for Plex Amp and um, just just got to a point where I really wanted solid intro and outro skipping. I know it's stupid, but I just wanted a system that just handled it. Plus, the hardware encoding seems to work better with Plex. And just these reasons... Oh, and then I had some Jellyfin instability, of course. These reasons all kind of came together, and I ended up switching back to Plex. And I had a great experience. I was on a trip recently. We had an unplanned rainstorm that came down. And I hadn't really planned to watch a movie, but we had some movies locally on our disc. And... um, I had, you know, everything kind of just ready to go and fired it right up and it it worked. It worked flawlessly. You know, the surround sound worked. Everything really did it, it everything direct played the way it should. It was it was really really nice. It was really really a bummer to get back from that trip <laughs> and see the news that Plex has been cracking down on users in multiple different ways. Um and maybe the one we should start with is the one that got the most attention out there. 
is Plex cracking down on a specific VPS provider, just essentially shutting them off. What's particularly interesting about this one is this targets Hetzner users. So if you're running a Plex server from a Hetzner IP block, it just won't work anymore. It won't authenticate with their cloud servers. You won't be able to do anything that requires any kind of internet connectivity, which with Plex, as we've talked about, is almost everything these days. And the reason they're cracking down on Hetzner specifically is because they offer some dedicated hardware boxes. So you have hardware acceleration available to you, you have decent amounts of storage, enough bandwidth to run a decent-sized server. Now, I also understand that that means it's open to abuse, and there will be a bunch of people running Plex servers, charging money for them, and profiting off of pirated content. That's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, in fact, I think it might be worth just briefly acknowledging there has been a really seedy side to the home entertainment community for a really long time where essentially guys build up pirated systems and then they go around and sell them to normies for a monthly price and say, hey, replace your cable and all your streaming services with this. I'll be your TV guy. And sometimes they just do it with friends and family. That's one thing. But sometimes they commercialize it and they even sell it and prepackage it on boxes that people hook up. I mean, they're actually making real money at this. So it, yeah, I do acknowledge it is sometimes an actual problem but this alex is a broad brush absolutely and it speaks to a common thread that we will continue to come back to throughout this segment of how do plex know what we're doing with their software yeah yeah so the other story that isn't getting quite as much attention but is in my opinion actually much more much more concerning uh so picture this listener you're sitting down to chill and watch some TV after a long day. You know it's going to look great. It's going to sound great. It's going to play instantly because everything's local and you spent the time to build a good LAN and get that media stash. You fire up the old Plex app. It does its typical thing where it launches. You know, it's probably talking to the, to the internet or something. It always seems like it takes just a little bit too long. And just as about your library is going to pop up on screen, you get an account error message and you don't get to watch your, te- your TV because your account's been disabled. Then, shortly after that, you start getting text messages from your friends asking if everything's all right, if you've been compromised or hacked. Then you check your email and you discover that Plex has banned your account for accepting, quote, monetary compensation in exchange for services based on Plex. The problem is you've done no such thing. And this has happened to a Plex Redditor just a couple of days ago. Alex, he was not using a VPS. It's his home Synology. He's running Plex on his home Synology on his home ISP, he has no inbound ports except for like his VPN and some Synology stuff, and he's sharing it with tech friends. This is a watershed moment for me. I I think at this point, it's an indefensible position for Plex to cancel this guy's account. So the, the really egregious thing that they did, in my opinion, was they not only emailed the server owner, they also emailed everybody who he had shared that server with, which according to his comments on Reddit was maybe five to 10 family members that he knows and personally trusts. You know, it's it's not a textbook kind of 50, 60 accounts type server that you would think, well, that's a bit out of the ordinary. It's not an outlier here. It's, it's what I would probably say is a fairly normal Plex sharing yeah. user. And I think their limit is 100. So if you're doing five to 10 and the limit's 100, you're pretty low down on the list. Can you imagine, though, getting an email 
saying that, uh, I, you know, let's just say my mum got an email saying, your son is doing something illegal, sharing his Plex server. We have shut his account down. She'd be on the phone in five minutes saying, are you all right? Are you going to jail? Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's... I know all you guys would have gotten an email if it happened to me. And you all been like, what is Chris up to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there was a whole bunch of conjecture in the subreddit, as you would expect, uh, around something like this. People presupposing that someone he'd shared it with had resold their Plex server to somebody else. And there was a whole bunch of reciprocation going on backwards and forwards. And we don't know the full details, and we probably never will, as to what pattern actually triggered Plex to do this. But I think, again, it speaks to the fact that Plex is phoning home and that that pattern was noticed by Plex to a point where it went, yep, you meet certain criteria. We are just going to ban this account. Doesn't matter that you're a lifetime member. Doesn't matter that you've only got a handful of users. Something you've done or somebody you've associated with, we don't like. Therefore, we're cutting you off. I'm sorry. You're cutting me off from the media in my house. Are you kidding? Yeah. And embarrassing me. Now, to be clear, he emailed Plex support couple hours later, they got back to him. Uh, they restored his account. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's, it's, they're done. We don't know how they got this information, how they're making this determination, but it's faulty, clearly. And, you know, one of the things that broke Jellyfin for me was when we were trying to finish that movie and it died in like the final act and I couldn't get Jellyfin to play that movie again. And I switched over to Plex and it worked just fine. My God, could you imagine if I was denied access to my media just simply because their automated Python script thought I was pirating content, I, I would be livid. I don't like the two stories together either, Alex, where one is like a VPS level attack uh, where they're trying to do it at scale. And one is like an individual pleb account, account that they're doing, which is it's like two ends of the spectrum, which to me suggests a renewed effort internally to, quote unquote, solve this problem. Somebody somewhere has signed a deal with a media company that had some terms in it that were strongly, strongly enough worded that Plex now need to alienate their original core user base by taking actions like this. I think it was inevitable. I think we, you know, we talked about this a lot in January as part of the Jellyfin Challenge. This, yeah, it's just inevitable, you know, to use, to use that word. It's, it's been a long time coming, and unfortunately, we called it. So this is always the struggle with free software versus the commercial stuff. Do you sacrifice certain features and functionality and glitz for a long-term unquantifiable good that may or may not materialize within one to 10 years? And here I find myself once again thinking maybe I should switch back to Jellyfin um, and just live with less features and less functionality like the, you know, like the mobile stuff. It's just TV. I want it to work so badly that I find myself hesitant, even with this to cross that line. Well, you know, what's interesting is hearing you make that case. You are the gentleman who has switched to giraffe OS to a pixel uh, device and issuing Google for the most part for a similar pattern of behavior for doing a bunch of stuff based on seemingly innocent actions that could get you in legal trouble. It's the same pattern here. Yeah. I know I would, I would drop it in a hot minute if it turned out they were doing some sort of checksum analytics and comparing like my files to like known popular release group files. If something like that was going on, which it sounds like it might be the only reason why I don't, I, 
I would I feel like I would notice that compute load in order to do that checksum and scan and walk across my entire library. I just can't imagine that's happening on my box without my noticing unless some other process is generating that as a byproduct and they can capture that. Well, maybe that intro skipping and credit skipping has a, a little algorithm built into it that you and I would never notice, that the, the plebeians would never notice and just, I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, to, to Plex's credit, a lot of their stuff is open source, but not the core stuff. But um, if anybody has any insights, I just, you know, push me over the edge here. Give me, give me, give me a, give me a something to solid that is a violation. I just, I understand they they're always going to face this pressure. Um, they're always going to have to walk this line and it's always going to get worse. So I know, I know my years in the open source community have taught me I should just invest in the open solution and just live with the shortcoming short term because they eventually get there long term and you don't have all these complications. Next up, you'll be editing a video on KDN Live, people. <laughs> have a final cut. Speaking of video, once I, uh, once I finish that video, I'm going to want to encode it as fast and efficiently as possible, Alex. Yeah. Now, I hinted at this in the last episode, but since then, uh, me and my buddy Morgan have written a benchmarking script for QuickSync. I've recorded a YouTube video to try and call you all to action and also written a blog post as well. So if you want the, de- the full details, there's plenty of content out there. But the short version is, if you want to know which CPU is the best bang for buck for a media server, one that's doing some kind of video transcoding, QuickSync is, in my opinion, the best game in town, particularly when you take into account frames per watt, as well as the cost of buying the used CPUs, you know, 8th, 9th gens, Intel, looks pretty sweet in ter- on, on the used market in terms of how much it costs versus the performance you get. But those assumptions are now a few years old. And is 13th gen as good as we think it is? I mean, the results, the early results are showing it's it's quite powerful, but it's more expensive. So what I need you to do, dear listener, if you have a 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th gen Intel CPU in your fleet, um, preferably a desktop class CPU. I've had plenty of the small form factor CPUs tested so far. I need a few more desktop class CPUs. If you'd be so kind as to spend five minutes of your life running this script for us and help us answer the question of what is the perfect media server CPU? 45homelab.com. You guys remember 98 of self-hosted, the old episode back in the before 100 days. We sat down with the guys from 45drives.com, which are famous for their big, fast storage servers, great performance, great prices, super, super high-end reliability, Real professional-grade solutions, but they were talking to us about something they wanted to create for the home lab community. And they've been taking in feedback, and they're brewing something up at 45homelab.com. Go there right now and check it out. I think this is going to be right up your alley. They have a little more information since we first started talking about them on the show. And they are now taking reservations in line. They have some details on there. Things are evolving quickly, and this is your chance to get in and see what's going on. 45homelab.com is where you go. If you're a listener to this show and you want high-quality home lab gear, this is right up your alley. You know the 45 Drives folks, right? They maintain some of the best systems out there. they got the open designs, ongoing relationships with the open source community. Who else is going to do this right but them? So go see how they do things differently. You could check out 45drives.com. But don't miss out what's going on at 45homelab.com. Big update over there. That's 45homelab.com. Now, we talked a little bit about iPadOS 17 earlier in the show. 
It's now the turn of tvOS 17. If you have an Apple TV, you can now run Tailscale on that bad boy. This is such a nice feature. I, I, I wish Apple would have added this to iOS sooner because it does a lot of magic things with any VPN app, but Tailscale in particular, I already, I already have all my media services on my Tailnet already. So it's just like a no-brainer. It's super nice to have client-side VPN configuration. You know, over the years, we, I think I've tried to solve this problem approximately 8 million times by doing stuff on the firewall, trying to do stuff with static routes, trying to, yeah, just all sorts of nonsense. And now you can install the Tailscale app on your Apple TV. And also with the Mulvad partnership that was announced uh, in the last couple of weeks as well, you can use that to pop out anywhere you would like far away from home. Yeah, that is really cool. I hadn't thought about that. But I think the feature that will probably get the most use by me is that you can use the Apple TV now as an exit node for other tailscale devices. So this means like my dad's Apple TV. I could put this on there now. And, you know, it's just it makes the remote support options way bigger and better. And because it works when the Apple TV is sleeping or active, you got yourself a super low power, always connected in a lot of cases via Ethernet, ready to go subnet router right there. A little exit node so you can get to all the other devices if you need to. And uh, it doesn't have to be on a PC anymore. And so for some people that don't have like a home server, like my neither of my folks have an always on computer, but they both have an Apple TV. Now, I generally hate correcting you, but you had a little slip of the tongue there, which was talking about subnet router. So we don't currently support that. But if enough of you comment on the YouTube video that's linked in the description of the show notes of this episode and say, I want the Apple TV to be a subnet router. I do. I can then go and have a cheeky word with the product manager for that feature and say, hey, look, 50 people want this. We we should add this feature. So I have a link to Alex's Tailscale video for the Apple TV on the Tailscale channel. And you leave a comment on that because I want that. I'm going to go do yes, that. Please. <laughs> yep. This is so great because it's a perfect device to add surprisingly complex network connectivity on something that people is just out of sight, out of mind, always on. Yep. And it's ideal for that kind of functionality. And don't forget, you can also take an Apple TV with you when you travel and then connect into your home remotely and use those exit nodes too, as well as all the magic DNS stuff that anything on your tailnet gets by default. Yeah. Or at now here at the studio, I will be able to watch media from the RV and keep all my watch stuff in sync. And that's just... When, like you said, when traveling, oh, I have been, this is the one and only reason I am updating my Apple TV to iOS 17. I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff, but this is the only thing I care about is VPN support. All right. That's sounding a bit like an ad read and it wasn't, but nope. uh, we, we genuinely, in, regardless of whether I work there, regardless of whether they are a sponsor of the show, it's just such a cool feature that I, I thought we had to cover it as a segment today. I agree. I mean, I put it in the doc. He did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. And we wanted to have a little positive news because, you know, we got a little we got a little rough with Plex and now we're reflecting on Home Assistant. It is their 10 year anniversary as we get together. And it's just a massive achievement. They're the most um, one of the most impactful projects in my life. Uh, They're the second most active open source project on GitHub. Nebukasa, the company behind it, is now five years old they haven't taken any VC money. They have made the, the development of Home Assistant sustainable 
without investors. I mean, it's that's a that's a really really big thing. And they just had a tenth birthday announcement with a stream and a blog post, and uh, they announced that Home Assistant Cloud, you know, their Nebuchadnezzar service, now has custom domain support, which is neat. They got a brand new fancy, well, refined logo. And a new product called the Home Assistant Green, a $99 hub. That's an ARM-based hub. They say is an entry point to the Home Assistant ecosystem. All right. I thought we were going to be positive, but you had to go and mention the uh, the Home Assistant Green. I heard from quite a few listeners who are still waiting for a Home Assistant Yellow that was ordered more than six months ago. Yeah, I did too, and I didn't realize it was this bad. Um, I was under the impression it was a small handful of people because back in February of 2023, they did an update, their last seeming update about the yellow. And they said, you know, 95% of them have gone out. We're we're now really restrained by the uh, CM4 supply. So what we're doing is as we get them, which we get a couple of hundred every now and then, we're sending out the units and we'll think we'll fulfill all the orders soon. And they estimated in that post that – we should have everybody fulfilled by August 31st of 2023. Uh, but they did stress that was an estimate and it was really dependent on the Raspberry Pi supply. So I, from that post, had the impression that we were talking a few hundred people. But, I mean, just by the odds, if you and I have both heard from a handful of listeners, that's more than I expected that are waiting. And so for them to see the green announced – when they haven't yet received their yellow, I think they're a little upset. I mean, I would be if I'd ordered a yellow. I think probably a decent uh, olive branch here would have been to email anybody with a pending yellow order to say, hey, by the way, there's a new thing. It's called the green. If you would like to cancel your yellow order and turn that into a green order, cool. We'll go ahead and do that and refund you the difference. If I look on rpilocator.com, that used to be a complete mess. There used to be nothing on that website. I now have to get to the middle of page two before I start seeing things out of stock. Now, I know the yellow uses the Compute Module 4, which has been more difficult to get hold of than a traditional Raspberry Pi 4. However, Jeff Geerling went to the UK earlier this year and met with even Upton, Raspberry Pi guy, did a whole video on how supply is improving and everything they're doing in the supply chain to improve everything. And so I took that message as if to say, okay, everything's back to normal now, but clearly it's not. You feel for him in a, in a sense. Like I can put myself in the home assistant group's headspace. I, maybe they didn't want to pre-announce anything. They didn't want the news getting out there. They wanted it to be a special announcement for the birthday. So they didn't want to email out, but now that it's announced, they could easily make that offer. And I think they could, they could have also done another update on the yellow crowdfunder page just clarifying what's going on before they made the announcement for the green. The green is a less powerful product. It has less storage. It has less radio capabilities. And I think their intention is to essentially have the green, the yellow, and the blue. And there are different tiers in the hardware. And maybe they, maybe they phase out the blue. Maybe they don't. But they're in different tiers of hardware capability, depending on what your quote unquote needs are. And so they don't see the green replacing the yellow because the yellow is a more capable device. I got mine. I got I did a, I did the funder and I did receive mine. And it's been in, I mean, probably for a year. It's been in product. It's been great. Actually, it's been really solid. But um, I was fortunate. 
I think one of the reasons I got mine is I seem to recall mine might have been without the module. So I supplied my own. This feels like a case of fool me once. You know, the Home Assistant Blue is now discontinued, and that was based on the Odroid N2 Plus. The yellow, I think they looked at solving the availability problem with the Odroid stuff, or maybe there was some higher cost there than they were happy with. And they wanted to build their own platform with their own radios and all that kind of stuff with the yellow, which was a a totally great aspirational product project. And uh, at the time, I remember we were both pretty pro. If you can't ship it, though, it's it's no good to anybody. So maybe third time's the charm with the green. Maybe they'll be able to make as many of these as they can sell. But I think, unfortunately, proof will be in the pudding of this one. I've seen it argued that they should just focus on software and services and not not get into the hardware game. I thought about that over the weekend, and I don't think I agree with that take online because this is a really hard thing for a lot of users to do. And they have an opportunity with creating the software experience and the hardware to make true vendor neutral open source home automation accessible to regular folks that are interested in the Amazon Echo Hub or whatever, right? Like they can actually make a product that those people could use if they keep down this path. And they got me every time, man. I own a blue, I own a yellow, and I own their Sky Connect, their little uh, Zigbee dongle and Matter dongle. I'm not interested in the green because it's, you know, I'm not downgrading my hardware, but I have received, I have ordered and received every single one of those products and they all have done exceptionally well at what they said they would do. You know, and when I buy products from smart home vendors, that's not always the case. <laughs> so, but I think it's also been a really tricky supply chain time. They're new to all of this. And I think maybe the lesson they learned with the green is they kind of seem like they've gone with their own solution with the arm. Like they're using a more generally available arm chip instead of going with a Pi platform. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the direction they need to go. So that way they're not impacted by Raspberry Pi's supply chain issues in the future. So I think, you know, the last 10 years, clearly with Home Assistant, has been largely a very positive experience. You know, they've gone from not existing to being the core of both of our smart homes. I wouldn't even consider basing my smart home around anything else, despite all the negativity we just espoused, you know, down our microphones. Well, we criticize because we care. I think that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And we've given criticism where it's due to Home Assistant many times in the past. I'm really looking forward to, though, over the next five or ten years, for Home Assistant to mature to a point where I could give it to my parents and not have to have it constantly monitored for, you know, they buy a new bulb and they they can figure out, you know, with the ease of like HomeKit or something, I'm also looking forward to the UI getting a little better. I, th- I think it feels kind of stale at this point. I joined the Home Assistant ecosystem just as Lovelace transition was happening. And since then, you know, it's kind of not changed at all, really. Uh, there are plenty of skins, there are plenty of mods, all that kind of stuff, but it still feels as it did maybe three or four years ago. So that's something I'd like to see too. I feel positive about that. I feel very positive because they, they're taking design a little more seriously in the most recent or so releases. And in their stream for the September release, it might have been, they previewed some upcoming design changes for the default Lovelace UI that does look like a nice improvement. It's not anything major, though, but it does look it looks like a nice evolution. Does it run on Wayland, though? That's the question. I don't know. Depends on the browser, which depends on the video <laughs> card, which depends on the driver, and of course, the you know, which distro you picked. 
<laughs> that's probably why that's probably why they just want their own stack. I hope they get there. I don't know if they ever get there, Alex, without maybe making the box, making the software that runs on the box, and as they do, making the app. Because the app is gonna be how all the normies onboard any new hardware into Home Assistant. Right. I I I sit down with my laptop, I open up the web browser. That's the way I work with Home Assistant when I'm doing something major. But if I gave it to my mom, she would do it on her phone. Yeah, that's the reality, isn't it? Now, if I if I look at other open source projects in a similar light, uh, there's Kubernetes, which is up there in the terms of contributors that uh, Home Assistant has. There's a handful of others too. But none of them have managed to solve the open source monetization problem problem in quite such a good way as Home Assistant have with their Nebucasa company, which is now funding the development of the Z-Wave integration you talked about in the last episode. And, you know, I don't know how many staff Home Assistant has on staff now, but it's more than a few. And it gives me confidence to base everything in my house around the project because I know it's going to be here in, a, in another 10 years because they figured out the funding. It's a sustainable business model. And very, very few open source projects have managed to pull that off. So it's a good point. Kudos to Home Assistant for doing that. Now, not to not end it on a positive note, but there is potential reputational damage if this hardware stuff doesn't get handled right. That's the danger of getting into hardware. You and I both agree, and I want to just underscore everything Alex said, with the caveat, reputational damage can be done if you don't ship hardware. Right, like I never got my Atari VCS that I ordered in 2018, and I'm still talking about it. You never got that right? thing. Just, I, I saw one on the shelf in it. Best Buy last week. Oh yeah, I know you can get them on Amazon oh. now. Yeah, I that know. chassis was beautiful. I still kind of want one. Yeah, I mean, imagine just putting like a, the in, the innards of a knock inside it or a Steam Deck or something. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, it was actually suggested to me as a little Obsidian note station out in the garage or something. Nice. I'm, I'm picturing like a war games terminal. Linode.com slash SSH. Head over there to get $100 in 60-day credit, and it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out the great news. Linode's now part of Akamai. All the tools we love, like the cloud manager that's well-built, the API that's super documented and has libraries ready to go, and the CLI that I use all the time to just do quick little things like upload to object storage or take a quick snapshot. That stuff's there. All that stuff's there. Those tools that give you the ability to scale and really build in the cloud quickly, but now they're combined with Akamai's power and global reach, and they're expanding those services, more cloud computing resources, and more tools while still giving you that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution for a user of any size or a business of any size. My RV is on a mobile connection, so one of the ways I leverage Linode for that rig is I put a sync thing instance up in the cloud behind my tail scale. And I sync data from both the origination points and to that endpoint in Linode. And then from those systems, I can sync down to my RV over multiple cellular connections extremely fast. So where like with, with LTE and throttling, I might get like a megabit if I'm lucky. I can pull that stuff down six, seven, eight megabits, no problem, just leveraging one extra instance of sync thing in the cloud. Linode makes it really easy to do that, and they're expanding all of this with now Akamai's global network of offerings and Akamai's data centers worldwide. They just recently fired one up in Sweden. So go check it out, support the show, get the $100, and deploy something. It's better than spinning up a local VM, too, because it's so fast and powerful, and their internet is screaming. It's linode.com slash SSH. Go there, see how Akamai is improving things, and 
Get that $100 in 60-day credit while you're supporting the show. It's linode.com slash SSH. So continuing on talking about home automation, we're going to talk a little bit about Nest devices now. This was my gateway into home automation long before I even touched or knew what a home assistant was. And this week, they've had some pretty interesting news that a variety of Google Nest devices are now limited to only one speaker group due to some kind of a legal issue. Yeah, I think this is like a battle with Sonos. You know, these patent lawsuits, they always end up hurting the user and the lawyers win. And what's frustrating is this is yet another rollback of functionality in the Nest line of products. You buy it and it can do A, B, and C, and then you hold on to it for a couple of years. And by, you know, 24, 48 months, somewhere in that, it's like it can only do A. (laughs) B and C have been retroactively removed via software update. Google said, quote, in light of a recent legal decision, Users will no longer be able to add new Nest devices to multiple groups. There are no changes to existing speaker groups. So if you don't make any changes, you might be okay. Some of the older products, maybe they're using different technology, like I think the original Google Home Hub, like the first-gen Home Mini as well, they're not affected by this lawsuit, which is really bizarre. Some products. So you're actually punished if you bought the more recent products. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do understand, you know, if, if for example, somebody made a, a product that infringed on some patent that I owned personally, I'd be like, hey, that's not cool. That's not fair. Yeah. But then as a consumer of the product that was infringing on someone else's patent, I think, well, I don't care about that other guy. I paid for a certain feature set. I should be able to use that until the end of time. Who owns this device anyway? I See, this is where, as a consumer, I feel like Google takes the L and licenses it right that's i mean i don't know for sure but looking back at history over other patent lawsuits like this when apple was sued like for mp3 support and things like that apple just bit the bullet and blew a bill and bought the license for all their users and i mean i know they don't make a lot of money on these products but if you decide to get into this market and i buy it because it can do a b and c and d and you didn't license them, and you have a massive, massive C-level legal team who who gets paid unbelievable salaries 365 days a week to look into this stuff, and you missed it, I'm sorry. You take the L. You don't punish the consumer who bought your product. If there's anything we've learned as online citizens over the last two decades, it's don't trust Google not to kill a product or kill a feature or take something away. This isn't the first time, is it? No, I, I looked just a couple. I, this is not even comprehensive. This is just scratching the surface. Uh, but like like you, I had a Nest device. I eventually moved off of it. One of the reasons was Nest Secure was killed in October of 2020. Drop cam cameras are getting killed in April of 2024. The Works with Nest program was killed in September 29th, just a few weeks ago. Nest thermostats, Google removed the ability to set different temperatures for different rooms and the ability to control the thermostat with third-party apps, and they killed the API. The Nest cams, well, they've been gutted in multitudes of ways. Mine now just sits in a drawer. Google removed the ability to create custom activity zones, the ability to receive alerts for specific types of events, which is like the number one thing I used it for. The Nest doorbells removed the ability to continuously record video, which is one of the key features of the Nest. Yes, it takes bandwidth, but that's what people like. They just removed it. Google also removed some of the general features from Nest products over the years, just like 
sharing devices with other people so like my wife could see the camera feed if she wanted to and of course third party apps that you could authorize to your nest account and that they could do things like look at the timeline and pull together like a, a th- like a montage killed all that and that's just this that's literally just scratching the surface for the last few years and don't even mention stadia <laughs> yeah <laughs> Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Head on over there for a free personal account and get 100 devices. Not a limited time thing. You get that for 100 devices when you go to Tailscale.com slash self-hosted and you're supporting the show. So what is it? Well, it's what we've all been waiting for. It is our VPN hero. Simple, secure network of any size for any team of any size, all built on WireGuard. It really is combining the best VPN protocol in the business with the best management technology. You can easily access private resources. You can quickly get into your devices through SSH. You can use Tailscale Send to send files around. It builds a mesh flat network between all of your systems. You can have ACLs to control it. There's all kinds of more advanced features you can integrate if you're an enterprise. And for us home labbers, it's just a really simple straightforward to get all your machines talking to each other over a private network really quick. You got like five devices. You can probably get it running on all of them in like three minutes. It's so, so easy. And you know it's safe because it's using WireGuard's noise protocol, which is just the best in the business. I personally use it to keep my family's systems connected so I can do remote tech support for the kids. All of my self-hosted stuff is now behind Tailscale. So like my Pizel 7 running Draphine OS, I'm syncing all that stuff to my next cloud over Tailscale. When I launched a new chat pad for ChatGPT so I could do my questions, it's all behind Tailscale. All my devices are talking to each other too, so then I can turn some on as subnet routers. So now I can get access to my solar equipment, and I can see what my solar charge rate is. Even though those are proprietary hardware devices, I've got them on my LAN, and I turned on subnet routing on my Odroid. I'm in, baby. I'm in. Tailscale is so great. You got to try it out. Now you can use it with the Apple TV. It's just going to open up a whole world of possibilities. So go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Support the show and try it for free for up to 100 devices. Not a limited time plan thing. They've just built their network so well. That's how they can do it. And if you're an enterprise, you're a business, give it a check because it'll integrate with your existing infrastructure your existing authentication system, and you won't have to have a big crazy VPN box. (laughs) I've been there. Try it out. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. So before we get into the feedback, I thought I'd just remind you all, if you want to find out some more stuff where I am online, you can go to alex.ktz.me. Now, Sean England writes in, what do you guys recommend for a local access garage door controller? Range in our doors is extremely poor due to metal buildings, metal siding, and I've used Home Assistant to automatically open garage doors upon entering the home zone. This worked very well until recently. Wife acceptance factor is dropping by the day. Oh, no. And I would really like Uh-oh. to get something going again. Thanks for all you guys do. I've been here since episode one. Yeah, I wonder why Home Assistant stopped correctly tracking your location every now and then that does happen to me as well and it's like maybe the app's sleeping or something like that alex you've played around with automating automating your garage doors i have and it really depends on the actual garage door opener that you have Uh, so some of the newer ones with chamberlain have this service built in called myq which is a cloud connected thingy thankfully though my door openers are from i think the original date that this house was built in the 80s they certainly got enough beige plastic to make me think they do. And thankfully, they have no cloud connectivity. And all I had to do was short a couple of jumper pins into the back of them using an ESP relay. 
Uh, I think I use the Sonoff SV, and then I have some firmware in an ESP Home, and then one of those little radar things that detects whether the door is open, whether there's a car, and then whether there's no car. So I've got three states, open, closed, car, no car. So four states, really. Uh, and that works really well for me. And I've, I've had no issues. They are probably, I'm going to touch wood here, the most reliable devices in my entire house. They just work first time every single time. Yeah, what's great, right, is at the end of the day, it's just that relay is triggering the garage door as if you just push the button. So the, the garage door opener is none the wiser. Exactly. Yep. And those ESPs can be pretty solid. And the reason I mentioned the MyQ stuff is they have some kind of rotating encryption nonsense, which prevents you from doing that. So if you have a newer garage door opener, you might have a bit more of a time than I do. I don't build them like they used to. <laughs> One thing that's always true on this show, when we talk about Zigbee, Z-Wave, and devices, we always get a ton of feedback. And we're going to get to more of that in just a bit. But I wanted to just pass along, because it's been about almost a full month of in-production use. I got two Zigbee buttons that are working really well. One is not going to surprise anybody who knows this stuff, the Aquara wireless mini switch. It is Zigbee. It is battery powered. Works every freaking time. Love that. But I needed more. I wanted like a quad. And they all needed to be physical press buttons, not touch surfaces. I want a good button feel. And I don't know how you say it, but it's the Him Ojo, H-I-M-O-J-O, wireless scene switch. And this is also a Zigbee device that's working extremely well. A lot of these you can program multiple tap functions as well. 24-ish bucks with a 10% coupon. Um, and actually, there's a 15% promo code on it right now, too. So I'm, maybe I'm going to get another one. <laughs> and I'm really happy with these. They are not wired. So eventually, I will have to replace the batteries, but they both claim about a year of life. And I can monitor the battery status in Home Assistant. So I do have eyeballs on that. And I love it. I'm going to – I think I am going to get more. Uh, after years and years of not having physical buttons and just using tablets, I just love it. It's been, and it's like the power to program the button to do anything is so much nicer than a conventional wall switch. I had a bunch of listeners reach out to me and recommend me the Innovelli stuff. They are Zigbee. There's a blue series of switches that Innovelli make, which are Zigbee. Then bringing also to market a inductive motor compatible switch too. So for like ceiling fans and stuff. Apparently, the continuous load of an inductive motor, like a ceiling fan, requires some different grade of some, I don't know, compared to the, the main on-off dimmer switch that uh, that is there. So highly recommended. I don't have any yet, the Innovelli stuff, but they came very highly recommended. I also added this week a couple of smart blinds to my house. So I bought some of the IKEA Trodfri. My Swedish friends will tell me whether I got that right this week or not. Uh, I added some of the IKEA smart blinds to my house, which are based on uh, Zigbee as well. Paired right up to ZHA, no issues whatsoever. Just worked first time. Perfect. I've been wondering, I've heard that about the Tradfi or whatever gear. Trodfree. Trodfree. Yeah, there you go. That's really exciting because they make some compelling products. They do, and they've got this little, um, it must be a pair of 18650 cells inside. It looks almost like a camera battery. And it kind of just slots in the top of the blind motor housing thing. And the internet reckons that you get about a year's worth of battery life on these things. So I added a couple of home assistant automations and got woken up at 7 a.m. this morning by my blinds opening in the bedroom for the first time ever. And I was like, this is awesome. This is so cool. That's great. 
Did you time it to like the sunrise or something? No, just I'm on toddler time, dude. You know, so 7 a.m. is uh, a late one. So <laughs> that's really cool that they're wireless like that, too. In, in my case, I'd prefer that. So then I don't have to run. Uh, you know, I can't really run electrical. Well, we got uh, we got a bunch of great boosts and the topic continues over there. Ambient noise is our baller booster this week with twenty six thousand one hundred and fifty two sats. Uh, and I agree in most circumstances, he writes, using a normal wall plate is a must for me. Many advantages for starters for the wife. She only found out that these were actually smart a week after I installed them. Yeah. I second the Sonoff Mini R2. I've been using two of these units, Flash with Tasmodo, for nearly two years. However, I've been transitioning to Zigbee-based Sonoff units like the ZB Mini L2. We got a couple of recommendations for that one. And the ZB Mini. The Zigbee ones have gone really well so far, and there's no flashing required. He sent us a postcode boost, but I don't – 3930 doesn't – maybe I postcode wrong, but I don't have the map. Uh, he says, also with Zigbee, don't use the Sonoff bridge units. I found them to be unreliable. I use two Sonoff dongles. One is the coordinator attached to Raspberry Pi, and the other I flashed with a relay firmware to extend the range. It's been rock solid since then. Those IKEA blinds <laughs> included a couple of repeaters in in the box too. So I, I paired a couple of those up with Home Assistant and I had a look at my ZHA network map, topology map this morning after they'd had an, a night's worth of time to kind of configure themselves. And sure enough, the Zigbee network in my house, now I've got a bunch of Hue bulbs, I've got a bunch of IKEA repeaters, some Sonoff devices. The more Zigbee devices you have that act as what are called modems, the better your experience is going to be. And so I, th- I think maybe I just need to buy into Zigbee even harder. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of how I fixed it is, you know, a lot of the smart plugs will also act as you know, a node on the network and as a relay. And so as I added more smart plugs to areas that were a little weaker, it solved my problems. But you don't often find battery-powered devices that will do that. So that's really cool they, they built that in. You're, you're selling me on them. Mick Zip came in with 25,000 sets. Uh, I got to send some love for these rotary phones. We got one as a gift in college in 2004, but alas, it had the wrong connector, and I didn't know I could create what I could create an RJ11 out of. Uh, so it just sat on my desk. I still have it. Sometimes I'd fidget with the dial. You know, you, you might look at some adapter kits. I think Gene Bean found one. You know, pair it up with Home Assistant. Use the new voice stuff. It's pretty slick looking. I also love the old feel of the chunk chunk <laughs> it's the best withers came in with some mcducks 22,222 sats zigbee is like the troublesome girlfriend that despite knowing better i keep taking back because <laughs> i just want it to work <laughs> oh so many hours spent troubleshooting connectivity problems after months of smooth sailing and then zigbee just implodes i'm rebuilding my zigbee network as we speak i'll never learn <laughs> oh man withers <laughs> Does that remind you of anybody in Plex? Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of reminds me of me with my early Zigbee network, too, where I would have it working for about a week or two, and then I'd end up re-adding everything. We know better, folks. We know better. <laughs> Gene Bean's got the other take. He came in with uh, some some evil sats, 6,666 sats. He says, I don't think I've ever said this to y'all before, but I think you're just flat out wrong about the reliability of Zigbee buttons and Home Assistant. I've had the Aquara ones in two different houses now, and I've never had it not work. Things go instantly after I press the button. It all worked better after setting my Zigbee channel to not overlap with my Wi-Fi and moving off the combi stick. I use the PoE controller from Tubes ZB. 
That's tubezb.com, which I was looking at. They have some really cool devices. I've actually had one of the listeners recommend that we interview the guy behind the tube stuff. So I might reach out to them because you are not the first oh. person to recommend this this stuff to me. I've been using the Combi myself for a long time. And I think if I was to move off of ZHA and Combi, I'd want to move to Zigbee to MQTT and separate that whole Zigbee thing from Home Assistant and then feed Home Assistant the events through MQTT. But uh, this this Tube stuff, if you've not seen it, tubeszb.com, go take a look. There is some pretty cool stuff over there. Gene's tip in there about um, making sure you're not overlapping the channels. Remember, Zigbee is 2.4. Your Wi-Fi is going to have some 2.4 going on. And for me, it was so stupid, and I think probably a mistake a lot of people have accidentally made, is I had a cabinet with my smart gear equipment where my Wi-Fi access point was. And it was the same cabinet that my Zigbee stick was in. And they're both 2.4 gigahertz. What do you think is going to happen, right? So when I realized that and I separated the two and I made sure the channels didn't overlap, I had basically Zigbee success after that. So I think Gene B makes a great point. Uh, Marshall Miller came in with 5,000 sets. I've come out as a fellow domain hoarder. Chris, you need one for every project. <laughs> of course, you often need variations. You need the .app, the .io, the .org, the .net, the .com. And then, of course, you need a link shortener. You're going to eventually want – I mean, look at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash whatever is pretty long. You could spin up a cut instance, grab jupes.link. Now you got short URLs. Hmm, if anything, Alex is the weird one here. <laughs> you know, he's right. Jupes.link would be good. Yeah, I think he's right, Alex. <laughs> Jupes.link. Is that even available? I don't know. I think it is, right? And now I want it. <laughs> $7.70 a year, a pork bun. That's a great deal. Jupes.link. You're going to buy that after the show. How, how could I you not? You should do it before right? this episode goes out, too. I know. Someone's going to domain snipe you. I know. I know. Dang it. Dang it. We got a couple other boosters who were hoarders, so thank you. And the Soltros came in with our last boost for this episode, 15,000 sats. I really like Obsidian, but I don't like paying for the syncing service, so I decided to use Nextcloud WebDAV as a backend for it. With the, quote, remotely sync community plugin, I can keep my Obsidian vaults in sync on all my devices using TailScale, with the added bonus of being able to modify anything in the Nextcloud Notes app if I need to. I should get a bell for any time anybody mentions TailScale now, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> or Obsidian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think some, some listeners might think you work for Obsidian. So, you know, the issue <laughs> the issue with Obsidian Sync is everything works perfectly with a self-hosted sync solution until you get to iOS. Yep. And then you are completely SOL without a paddle up the creek. And good luck to you, son. I know we've had some listeners write in that have come up with kind of, you know, Rube Goldberg machines to kind of make it work with iOS. <laughs> yeah, working copy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just not the direction I want to go for this. I want it to be instant. I want it to capture. I want to open it up, boop, 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 capture. I know it's been saved. Uh, if I wasn't trying to use an iPad or an iPhone ever, I completely would co-sign Soltros' setup here because I think that would really do it. So I guess one of the advantages if you don't get yourself in the iOS ecosystem, the problem is that iPad with a keyboard makes a pretty decent little notes machine. Yeah, that is the trouble. Just iOS, just iOS in general. It's just, it's deep down, it really annoys me that I'm an iOS user. I wish I wasn't, but now I have a kid. All the parental controls are pretty sweet, and the camera's pretty good, and I can airdrop footage I've shot for B-roll over to my Mac. You, you, you get the idea. You've heard this picture a million times. It's just yeah. annoyingly cohesive for everything else except background services. Yeah. Yeah, there is that, isn't there? 
Uh, thank you, everybody who boosted. We had 11 boosters uh, in total, and uh, we stacked 124,395 sats. We don't get to all the boosts in every episode, but we try to mix it up and pick some themes and uh, feature our ballers. Uh, but what we'll do, and I'm going to start posting these publicly, is we do always put everybody's boost into the show notes in the boost barn. And I'm going to just post those publicly now. If you're interested in reading what other folks boost in that didn't make it in the show, you'll find a link in the show notes. Thank you, everybody who boosts in and supports this production of the self-hosted program. We greatly appreciate it. You can boost in with a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, and Castomatic are probably the most popular in our community. But a lot of people want to keep their app, so just get Albie, getalbi.com, top it off over the Lightning Network, and then go to the podcast index and find us. We got links to everything in the show notes, and then you can send your note in and support the show, or you can become a member and support each production that way. That's all at selfhosted.show slash SRE. You get an ad-free version of the show, and you get the extended post-show, and you know that you're making the show possible. That's selfhosted.show slash SRE. Now, I've been doing a few more consultations with listeners lately who have been stuck on some particular, you know, self-hosting problem or something like that. There was one guy's Nextcloud blew up, for example. Um, we spent a couple of hours on the phone uh, troubleshooting that and getting it back up and running. Those are paid sessions. If you'd like to reach out, you can find me at alex.ktz.me. I should also mention meetup.com slash Northwest again. There are multiple events going on Friday, Saturday, and uh, who knows? depending on who's around, maybe into Sunday. And uh, we have those detailed, well, LinuxFest does, at meetup.com slash Northwest. If you're going to make it, let them know because they're planning for venues and whatnot. And we will be doing our best to do a live LUP, I believe. And if I can make it a live self-hosted, my travel is TBD up in the air uh, with everything changing around and job and stuff. It's It's been tricky, but, uh, you know, one of those things. Got to roll with the punches sometimes. So selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. And thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 106.